Welcome to this podcast of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Venice, Florida. It is the second Sunday of Lent, and you will hear Pastor Dan Walcott preach on Luke thirteen, thirty-one to 35. As you listen, see if you can answer some of these questions. The questions, one, who exactly were the Pharisees? Two, how was Jesus a disruptor of the law? Three, what was Nicodemus' relationship with Jesus? Four, do we ever say to God, just leave me alone right now? Five, Do you have some unexpected ministry from God? Six, can your life be busy and be at prayer? And seven, how can I live out this statement, don't just do something, stand there? Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent into it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, You will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I'd like for us to focus just a few moments uh, on the Pharisees. They were a sect like like the Sadducees, but unlike the Sadducees, they uh, believed that the word of God, the Torah, should be um, not held completely in every situation, that it should be interpreted no matter what the issues come al- uh, came along. The Sadducees said, no, if it says so in the Torah, that's what we've got to believe and that's what we have to do. Pharisees were a little more liberal in that sense, believing that, as I said, that it was fine to interpret the Torah. 
But over the years, what they did with that was to develop uh, a whole sense found in the Mishnah of uh, tradition. You remember, if you ever saw this, the uh, fiddler on the roof, Tavia railed against tradition. To the Pharisees, tradition was almost as sacred as Holy Scripture. Tradition, tradition. So Jesus, as we read in Scripture, was preeminently a disruptor of tradition. Is there any place in Scripture that you have found where Jesus came into a situation and left it as it was, the status quo, left it just like it was, sometimes uh, for good for people, uh, sometimes very, very challenging. He was a disruptor of the status quo. You remember what he had to say about the Pharisees. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and cumin and omit the weightier matters of the law. These you should have done while leaving the others uh, the way they should be. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs that outside are beautiful to look at, but inside are filled with men's bones. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven against others. Do you neither enter yourselves nor allow others to enter? Other traditions uh, he attacked. Do you recall the situation in John's Gospel about the woman caught in adultery? Scripture is pretty clear about that in the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, that if someone is caught in the very act of adultery, they've got to be stoned. I mean, there's no room for interpretation there that the man and the woman uh, should be stoned to death. Well, in this case, in John's Gospel, uh, these pious men brought to him uh, a woman. Not, not the man, of course, but the woman. <laughs> and um, what do you say, Master? Scripture says that she should be stoned. What do you say? How wonderful it was that he knelt down, drew figures in the sand, and then looked up at them. Well, I'll tell you this. Who that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And they slunk away, knowing that they all had sin. Oh, this one, this is wonderful. They're hungry, the disciples and Jesus, and they're going through the wheat fields on the Sabbath. And the disciples began picking the grains of wheat and uh, rubbing the the grains together to get the husk off and uh, eating them. The Pharisees looked at this and they said, well, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? You're thrashing. To them, that was thrashing, actually, you know. Rub the husk and blow it off. Sitting at table with tax collectors, that just simply wasn't done. Jews didn't do that. Well, Jesus did. Um, No fasting for the disciples. 
Someone came to him one day and said, well, the disciples of John the Baptist fast. Why don't your disciples disciples fast? He said, well, the bridegroom is with them now. Time will come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them. Then they can fast. The man with a withered hand, on the Sabbath, early in Jesus' ministry, Jesus perceiving the thoughts of the Pharisees when they were thinking, wonder if he's going to break the Sabbath by healing the man. Imagine this, healing the man on the Sabbath. Horrors. He knew what they were thinking. He said to the man, show me your hand. And he healed it on the Sabbath. So he was a disruptor of their way of looking at things. So when the Pharisees came to him, those Pharisees that apparently thought highly of him, those few, like Nicodemus, and said, get out of here, you better get away, because Herod wants to have you killed. We ought to take note, it seems to me. There were a few. Nicodemus, of course, came to him by night asking for instruction. Nicodemus uh, was one of the ones that wrapped the broken body of, of Jesus after the crucifixion. Nicodemus was the one who, when the Sanhedrin was ready to uh, have him condemned, said to them, do we condemn anyone uh, without a trial? So there were, there were a few. And I would like to give those that came to Jesus the benefit of a doubt. They really did not want him to face what they knew was coming, the horror of a crucifixion, to say nothing of the terrible, terrible flogging that preceded it. Get out of here. Herod wants to have you killed. Got me to thinking a little bit, though. Is there any way in your life and mine that we have a way of saying to him, Oh, I know what I should do here, but not just now. I've got my day all planned. I have my life all planned. Uh, Can you leave me alone just a little bit? You remember what Tavia said in Fiddler on the Roof of the Jews who was wailing the fact that the Jews were the persecuted constantly. And he said to God, pick somebody else for a time. <laughs> Recall that. It was so wonderful. But how about it? We're into Lent. Most of us here have a pretty good way of life that we think is good. We have patterns, we have our attitudes, we have a little bit, a few prejudices maybe, but we have adopted, especially for a little older, a way of life that is pleasing and we like. We like to be able to plan our time, we like to be able to do our activities, we like what we like. I like in the morning uh, to get up and do some devotions, but then I, I try to plan the day. What am I going to do today? Well, Junie and I are going to do this, that, and the other thing. Jesus has a way, I think, of entering into those neat little plans that we make. They're not bad plans. They're just plans. And saying to you, do you really want to do this today? I've got something else I'd like for you to think about. No, uh, not just now, please. I have my life plan, my day plan. What we're doing and what I'm doing is is uh, kind of nice, really. I wonder if 
we are challenged that way, especially in Lent. I want to share with you a couple of things that I've been studying lately. I've uh, I've been reading uh, a book of devotions in the morning, uh, written by actually it was written by Oswald, uh, written by the, uh, the the wife of Oswald Chambers, uh, who died in 1917 during World War One. He was a missionary to the soldiers, the British soldiers in Egypt, and uh, he taught. Brilliant scholar, uh, taught the people, and uh, his wife uh, Biddy was her nickname, transcribed everything that he said. And she ended up upon his death with a whole ream of notes. He died unexpectedly, very young man. And, uh, of course, she was devastated. But she began transcribing what he had said and taught. And one of these is written in his book, in her book, actually, uh, My Utmost for His Highest. What a ministry she had. It came about as a result of a terrible tragedy in her life. She had a little girl to raise, eight years old. But it was a ministry, and it was an unexpected ministry. No one expected Oswald Chambers to die at such a young age, but he did. And she took that time, let God tell her what he expected her how to do, and she did it and spent the rest of her life transcribing, writing down the things that he had taught and had them published in books. See, his death was something that transported her into what she had really not planned to do with her time. I want to tell you a little bit about Thomas Kelly. Maybe you know who he was. He was a Quaker mystic, a brilliant man, brilliant educator, had all kinds of degrees, wrote a book called, after his death, called The Testament of Devotion, uh, Thomas Kelly had uh, uh, lots of degrees, as I said. He had a Ph.D. from Haverford College, had taught in Earlham College and all over. But for some strange reason, Thomas Kelly thought he had to have another Ph.D. <laughs> one would have thought one Ph.D. would be enough, but not for Thomas Kelly. No, I want to get another, and I want this one from Harvard. Okay, so he proceeded. They let him come into the program, and he proceeded to write his dissertation and had it published. And uh, they called him up, they meaning the team that was to uh, talk about his dissertation. They called him up for uh, his, his verbals, where you have to stand up in front of these erudite scholars and answer their questions about your dissertation. So they started pummeling, pummeling him with questions. Kelly absolutely froze. He could not think of any answer to their questions. Have you ever had that where you want to say something, you know what it is, and you just freeze up? He froze up. Question after question, Mr. Kelly, what did you said here? What did you, th- why did you say that? Or what was the research behind that? He had no answers for them. His mind just went blank. Well, finally, the leader of the team of scholars that were questioning him uh, took control and said, Mr. Kelly, we're sorry to say that you have failed these examinations. You will not be ever get a Ph.D. from Harvard. Well, it completely threw him. Uh, always before, Kelly had done what he thought he ought to be doing with his time and 
And uh, he was motivated to do that. This threw him into a deep depression. Didn't quite have a nervous breakdown, but he withdrew for a period of several weeks to try to figure out what the next step might be. And out of that, he wrote these devotions called a testament of devotion. And his whole thesis is that our lives can, if we align ourselves with what God really wants of us and expects of us, our lives can be busy, to be sure, but at a deeper level, constantly be at prayer. Uh, in the inner mind, we, we, can, we can do that. We can let God do that through us. Uh, I would like that to happen for me. I would like to think that every moment of every single day, I am in prayer while I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Wouldn't you? That would be a wonderful way to live. So the question, I think, of Lent is, what is God wanting you to do that you're not doing? What is God expecting of you and me that we're just not accomplishing with our time? Life is short, as Father says every Sunday when we meet together. Life is short. It ought to be spent not so much for what we think we ought to be doing, but what God expects us to be doing. And the only way I know in order to accomplish that is to stand back once in a while, maybe often. And as someone said once, don't just do something, stand there. I think that's pretty good for Lent, isn't it? We don't need to be doing and doing and doing and to be so busy all the time that we don't really have time for a spiritual life, a vibrant spiritual life. I think God expects us to stand back once in a while. This is what Lent is all about, I think, so that we might be able to be used by Almighty God. Oswald Chambers, in that book of devotions that I referred to, has one overriding theme. It's 365 daily devotions. But there's one theme that every single day, turn everything, everything over to God. Make sure he has control of all of your life, your likes, your dislikes, your prejudices, compromises that you make, the neat little Turn it all over, and he will make of you something beautiful and something lovely. I like what our psalm had to say this morning, the last of it. Uh, The 18th verse of the psalm. O tarry and await the Lord's pleasure. Be strong, and he shall comfort your heart. Wait patiently for the Lord. If that isn't something for Lent, for you and for me, I don't know what is. Wait patiently for the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Questions. 1. Who exactly were the Pharisees? 2. 
How was Jesus a disruptor of the law? 3. What was Nicodemus' relationship with Jesus? 4. Do we ever say to God, just leave me alone right now? 5. Do you have some unexpected ministry from God? 6. Can your life be busy and be at prayer? And seven, how can I live out this statement? Don't just do something, stand there.